IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode, we talk about musicians feuding with music critics, the song of the summer, and patio music. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's still waiting for Donald Glover to track him down at the gym. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? I think that our audience needs a little bit of context for that statement. Um, By the way, though, Bodybuilder's Gym, a fixture of Silver Lake, no longer uh, is where it is. I actually see quite a few musicians at that gym. Uh, The first day I went to Bodybuilders when I moved to my new place in Silver Lake, I saw Patton Oswalt on the treadmill next to me. And I'm like, (laughs) it's like, you know, uh, a funny fucking dude, but like, you know, notoriously like not a picture of like being a jacked entertainment dude. Um, So I'm like, yeah, Yeah. this is the place for me. But uh, eventually I would see like, you know, guys from Marvel movies, guys from popular black gays metal groups, you know, hint, hint. Um, Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it was an an interesting spot given the fact that it was like the size of a postage stamp. But what you're referring to, uh, you know, Donald Glover, a.k.a. Childish Gambino, um, you know, intimating to Vice Magazine that he see me at the gym and he might kick my ass like that's a real thing. Uh, because there was a day where I like I'm like that, is that is that fucking him? And apparently it was. And this is related to like my favorite bit of Ian Cohen <laughs> professional trivia yeah. is your 1.6 review of Childish Gambino's Camp, which what was that? 2012. That was 2011. I remember this. I, okay. I I have very distinct memories because like I shit you not that was it that happened in like December. And the day that review ran, there was, like, this weird storm power outage throughout Los Angeles. So, like, I never – I didn't see, like, any of the initial hubbub, like, uh, it, it, during that day. It was, like, that woman who, like, posted that terrible tweet about going to Africa on a plane. And when she gets off the plane, it's, like, the internet's going nuts. Uh, not as bad yeah. as that, but that was my version of it. So you're saying that your review – was so startling that it actually knocked out the power grid in Southern California. Look. Like it caused a blackout. It was there was that much consternation about your view of lightly comic backpack rap that California just couldn't take it. And people were sitting in darkness <laughs> and wondering, I started reading this review. I just saw the score. I wonder how Ian's gonna justify this. And now our power's out. I'm not gonna know for hours how Ian supported the score, which is totally outrageous, of this review of Cannon. I broke the internet and won the internet, sir. <laughs> that was that, 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 that. By the way, we promised to talk about patio music and Song of the Summer, and here we are relitigating music writer beef from the dead of winter in 2011. Love this it. Is, we, love this, it. Love it. Our show fucking rules. <laughs> well, I, I, I could talk about that for Me hours. too. <laughs> I, 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 I could do a multi-episode arc on... Uh, the 2011 Childish Gambino review. Um, we have to talk about this this week because there's been some music critic musician feuds yet again happening. Yeah. And this happened after we recorded last week. This was actually like a last week story. I think this was on Friday that this went down. Yeah, I think it was like, yeah, it was either Friday or like Thursday night or like Thursday morning. Like basically, um, 
Like right after we recorded. Yeah. It was, it, 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 or maybe as we were, were recording, this was unfolding. There was a review that ran in Pitchfork mm-hmm. of the uh, Bethany Cosentino album, uh, which I cannot remember the title of right now. Do you remember the title of this album? <laughs> like uh, the fact that I can't, I think it's like Natural Disaster. Yes. That's it. That's it. God, thank God I got it fucking right. I don't want to like prolong this beef because, like, I think that was like one of the foundational issues is that like her name was spelled wrong, which also happened to uh, Unknown Mortal Orchestra this year. Like, they got like kind of a middling review, and that was the kind of gotcha moment. Like, this happens so many times where it's like, how can you trust the yeah. opinions when you couldn't even get my name right? And it's like, well, well, <laughs> well, and granted, it's not a good look if you're no. gonna. Uh, especially if you're going to take umbrage with the lyrical content of an album and then you misspell the name. Preferably, you don't want to do that. It doesn't necessarily negate the criticism, but at any rate, uh, the, the the album got a 5.9 review. Bethany Cosentino goes online, and she does the thing where she says, I'm not upset about this. <laughs> I'm laughing about it. However, I am doing a multi-tweet thread about it, but I'm not upset about it. Um and this kicked off a dialogue about music critics and musicians. You had Jenny Lewis chiming in saying, uh, I think, I believe she said, fuck Pitchfork mm-hmm. was her quote. And she said, you know, they've been ruining my release dates for the last 20 years. And uh, there were people. Yeah, I need the fact check. I need a citation needed for that. <laughs> well, I, I feel like she's an artist. I feel like her most pivotal records I feel like were slagged at the time and then they were uh, praised later on. I mean, not by me, I, but uh, I think you know by Pitchfork. Yeah, you know how I am with the execution of all things, which I'm going to look it up right here. 2003, uh, it got a 7.5, which, you know, that, okay. yeah, not, not t- uh, off, not great, but oh yeah, they fucked, they really did not like Under the Blacklight. All right, well, fair enough. Rabbit for Coat, my favorite album of 2006. You can what? go back. That, yeah. Wow. Why is that Not, so shocking? Because of the Hold Steady released an album that year. Like, uh, you know, that that was they released the album that I liked of theirs. <laughs> so Boys and Girls in America. I mean, yeah. yeah, that would that was up there for me. But you no, know, Rabbit for Coat is like that was my album of 06. That was like listening to it every day. And that's still like a favorite of mine. That's a great record. Okay, I actually prefer. Her solo work, I think, to Rilo Kiley. Mm. And I don't know if that's controversial. You gave like a little skeptical mm there. So I assume that you don't agree with that. Well, Is I that think, a controversial I, take? I think nowadays that I, I'm like, mm, because I think that nowadays like the um, there was this whole dialogue that I was a part of where your opinion that like Jenny Lewis's solo work is superior to Rilo Kiley's is like kind of the uh, the going theory because that's just people's ways to... Um, you know, throw shots at Blake Senate. Uh, it's the, not. The, it's it's no shots at him. I think. Well, okay. that's that's t- that's how people kind of justify it because you know. Well, it's no, like, it's just because she's older and she's like a better songwriter. That would just. That's why I think. That okay. Better. I, well, I'm, not I'm, that's, not, I'm not saying that's. I'm not saying that's your move. <laughs> I'm not saying Rilo Kylie is shit. Like I okay. like Rilo Kylie a lot. I just I the albums that I love the most that she has made are on her own. And it is no shot at Blake Senate or anyone else in Rilo Kylie. Shout out to the I elective. Mean, why why does there have to be some ulterior motive? 
This is such a modern day thing that you can't just <laughs> like something or dislike something. It's got to be like a multi-layered thing. It's got to be, I like this thing because I actually hate this thing. Mm. You can dislike something. They, I just like the records. Yeah. I mean, I, I was about to like throw an Uncle Murdo reference in there, but I think it's, you know, just why are we arguing anyway? Oh, I forgot. It's summertime. Maybe people are just like cooped up. Maybe we, ne- maybe they need a song of the summer to get them out of this like loop of arguing over, um, you know, kind of rootsy singer songwritery LA stuff. I don't know. It's, it's, it's just so, it, it's just so profoundly depressing to. Well, let's, well, you're skipping ahead here. We don't need yes. to talk about Song of the Summer yet. Let's let's stay focused on this music critic, musician <laughs> dynamic because I think it is interesting, uh, what what goes into play here. Because I, I it it just reminded me of how I've always felt about this is that music uh, the the musicians have a have. I think they're totally justified in hating music critics. <laughs> like like if, like like if you're a musician and you resent music critics, I think. Uh, I, I think it's lame when music critics like try to say like, well, it's a bad look or, you know, you, you should have a thicker skin or you shouldn't respond to this stuff. They have a total right to respond. They have a total right to complain about reviews. I mean, I, I understand where they're coming from. I would also say that as a critic, I, I'm not writing for artists. I'm writing for listeners. And because of that, it requires a level of honesty that, is going to be hurtful to the artist inevitably. Mm-hmm. There's no getting around that. You know, I, I, I've seen people say that you should never write anything that you would never say to a person's face. Wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think that's completely wrong because we are conditioned uh, to be polite in person. I would never. I wouldn't say like a quarter of the things that I've written to a person's face. Just because of social mores, it's very uncomfortable to tell people the truth. Like, we lie to each other all the time. (laughs) Uh, You know, like with your your wife or your friends, you know, you're never giving just the unvarnished truth because you would never get through life. You could, you know, you'd be like Larry David, (laughs) but like... The real life Larry David, like where it's not funny. And I'm not rich enough to be that guy. So, <laughs> well, not even Larry David's like that in real life. You yeah. know, like he's a, he's a person in the world. You know, you can't survive if you're going to be just giving your opinion on everything. Uh, that's what makes writing so fun to read because, in a way, it's more real than reality. When you like read someone's <laughs> opinion, it's like, well, this is what they actually think, and you actually don't really hear that that much in real life, but. Because of that unvarnished honesty, you know, it's totally justified for artists not to get into that. And I can relate to it to some degree because I've been reviewed too now. Like I've written some books and uh, most of my reviews thankfully have been positive, but I've gotten some negative snotty reviews. Like the, the most negative review I've ever gotten came from a place where I used to work, which <laughs> is the AV club. And... The most hurtful thing about that review is that initially they didn't even note that I used to work there. Like there'd been so much turnover <laughs> by then. And it was only, you know, six years after I'd worked there, but there'd been so much turnover that no one remembered that I had been the music editor there for like, you know, a year and I'd worked five years before that. Um, 
But you know, at the same time, like there's literal AI bots now right yeah. now at the <laughs> club. So I, I I can't take that too personally. They're doing but. data scraping AI. Like I mean, I we we could talk about that, but damn, I I really think you may have lost the battle, run the won the war on that one. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about this though, about like run-ins that you've had. I mean, we we were just talking about uh, Donald Glover. Yeah. Uh, and but I know you've had some other ones, and I found like in my own career. That, you know, you can write really negative reviews. And for the most part, you don't hear from the people, you know, no matter how harsh it might be. But if you write for Pitchfork, it seems much more likely that people are going to clap back at you. And like in my instance, in my personal experiences, like the clapbacks that I've had, almost all of them are related to Pitchfork. Mm-hmm. And there's just something about that site that is uh i don't know it's very enraging to artists i don't know what it is exactly it was interesting with the bethany cosentino and jenny lewis conversation how the perception of pitchfork among a lot of artists is still locked in like the early aughts (laughs) you know that they're like these indie snobs who are mean-spirited and out to get people that doesn't really jibe with like what pitchfork is now like in any way shape or form i I, so that always seems to come out though like when people are upset at pitchfork like oh you're pretentious you're indie snobs i mean i think that's an unfair characterization of the old pitchfork but it's certainly not true of the current pitchfork at all um but i don't know like I mean, because you've had a lot of these experiences right oh i have writing for pitchfork for (laughs) you've written for pitchfork for a long time I mean, do you think there's something about Pitchfork that is especially sort of provocative for artists that make them more likely to respond to a negative Pitchfork review than maybe a review somewhere else? Well, absolutely. I mean, I've, God, I've written more reviews for that site than I think anyone in that site's history and I've had more, uh, you know, artists clap back at me uh, as well. I mean, yeah, I used to actively seek that shit out, like, back in the day. Did you? To a to an extent, where I'm because I'm like, yeah, this this will be fun to write about. You know, this is it, it's it's more fun to write about like an album that like sucks than one that is you know kind of okay. And um, you know, and also this was back when it was like a lot. There was more separation between you know writers and artists, and there wasn't as big of an audience. Like we weren't having these kind of things what would what would it be with like you'd get i don't know the fucking airborne toxic event dude writing an open letter on an email blast i'm still on this guy's email list by the way um <laughs> i still get shit to this day um but you would get that and it would just be over you know I, uh you know but like in 2012 14 you know i was starting to notice that like i don't know i was getting some you know getting some blowback in a ways where I'm like, uh, you, you start to see just how this impacts other people, whether it's like, you know, the, the artists or the publicist or whatever. It's like, there's, it's much more condensed. It's much more like we're all in the same like summer camp. And so, um, you know, I kind of got away from that, but I just kind of want to point out like one of the, um, you know, one of the more interesting uh, components of this is that, when you see these type of meltdowns happen uh, nowadays, it's like always over like a six. It's always over like a middling review, not an outright pan. Like, 
because this this was like very similar to like 2021 where like the whole foxing shit went down i mean there i remember distinctly there was like a lord album out this week like a device of death heaven album and like that was the one that got the most uh got the most controversy going on by the way i just think it's also funny that like this meltdown happened and like in the same week that the Travis Scott review happened, that was like the Barbenheimer of like music writer Twitter beef because you see both kinds. Like the Travis Scott one was like, you know, where the ones I used to experience when I wrote about rap albums, like, oh, you fucking nerd, you know, look at the streaming numbers, you know, this guy's getting money, like you're 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 living in your parents' basement, like you're getting like no pussy getting motherfucker, like you'd get that, but that wasn't Travis Scott himself. No, and that's the big difference. You get, like, all, like, their little, like, dude Stan armies clapping back at you, which is what happened when, like, I, like, gave negative reviews, like, Kid Cudi and whatnot. Like, that, you get that kind of beef, which is, like, very 2011-ish. You get, like, emails from 3 o'clock in the morning from a college email address, and then you get, like, the Bethany Cosentino ones where, like, the artist gets involved and it's, like, discussion about... I don't know, like the concept of music criticism as a whole. It was really something for everyone this past week. <laughs> well, and it seemed like again that the the like the drive of of like the Bethany Cosentino thing was that well, Pitchfork's just being mean spirited for the sake of being mean spirited. Right. One thing I don't think that review is mean spirited, and two, I don't think that really critics now are motivated by that for many reasons, but above all that you're so disincentivized to be critical to people that have any kind of fan base i mean if you are going to write a negative review of a popular artist you have to steal yourself for the kind of reaction that you were talking about with travis scott where you're going to have all of these you know the 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 sort of like chuds of the (laughs) internet crawling out of the sewer to like you know buddy up to travis scott and talk about like what a bad person you are for not liking uh this album um, the most memorable experience I've had over of a review and a musician calling me out on it, and I've written about this, I think I tweeted about it too, was, it was a, over a Pitchfork review, it was of the album Mirage Rock by Band of Horses. <laughs> I wrote this, I, I think that was t- uh, 2012, and I gave know. it a 4.0, or the site gave it a 4.0, and I wrote a negative review of it, and then flash forward 10 years later, I'm interviewing Ben Bridwell from Band of Horses, and we're talking about every album that Band of Horses has made. And, w- and when we get to Mirage Rock, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, there's no way he's going to remember my review. Like, there's no way he's going to care. And sure enough, we get to Mirage Rock, and he takes out his phone, <laughs> and he shows me the review. And he's like, the worst fucking review I've ever, I ever got in my life. And he was good-natured about it, and I think he actually agreed that that was not a good album. Like, he felt like, there were a lot of things going on with the record label, and he wasn't in a good place. So it, it wasn't even like he thought I was like off base. Um, I think he did want to make me feel uncomfortable, like a little bit, and he did make me feel uncomfortable a little bit. Because again, like you, you don't want to feel like uh, you're just shitting on somebody, mm-hmm. uh, like when you're in in person with them. Even though, as a critic, sometimes it's your job to write negative things of, of about someone's work. But um, I think as a critic, sometimes you feel like, well, I'm going to write this review and the artist isn't going to care, or if they see it, they're going to forget about it instantly. And the fact is, is that the artist is the only one who will remember (laughs) your review. Like, no one in the world 
gives a shit about my review of Mirage Rock from 2012, except the person who made the record. I will push back against that lightly because the other day, like, I'm not making this shit up. I got, like, a weird, angry email about a review I wrote about Pond, which was, like, that kind of uh, offshoot of... It was this offshoot of uh, Tame Impala. It, you know what? It was actually because it was it turned 10. I gave it a... I'm just looking back here. 5-9. And someone emailed me. It's like, you fucked up with this Hobo Rocket review. <laughs> so, you got... The, That's true. You, yeah. You got the artist and, like, the most, like, degenerate pack of weirdos. No one in between. My favorite thing is when you have a take that becomes canon for people that want to discredit whatever your current take is. <laughs> so for instance, let's say you write a review of an album and a person doesn't like your review. And in my case, they would say, well, yeah, the person who ranked Stadium Arcadium as the worst <laughs> Red Hot Chili Peppers album, yeah, he would say this. You know, like me <laughs> calling Stadium Arcadium the worst Red Hat Chili Peppers album is evidence that I'm an idiot, and that can be brought up at any time as like a character witness to <laughs> discredit something I'm saying now, even if it's totally unrelated. You know, like, yeah, like there's things like that too. It's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I agree. And also, like, let's be real: is Stadium Arcadium the worst Red Hat Chili Peppers record? You know, absolutely. I, worse I than prepared. I'm with you. Absolutely, because it's way longer. That's true. It is. It is so goddamn long. It's, I reviewed that too on like Stylus or something. Like shout out to Stylus, uh, the Grantland of the the uh, mid uh, level music publications. But yeah, that album is long as fuck. <laughs> it's so long. The only defense of that album is I bought it at Best Buy when I was fourteen. Okay, that's the only <laughs> defense I've seen of that. It's all of these like the young Mars Volta Vines defense, of course. Yeah. And look, I've got albums that I'll defend for the same reason, so I, I, I'm not going to call that out. But for all the people who have gone after me on my Stadium Arcadium opinion, I just challenge you to listen to that album all in one sitting. Like, if you can do that and enjoy it, then fine. You can call me out. But I, I am convinced that you cannot physically do that. It is so goddamn long. <laughs> Song of the Summer, Humpty Bump for the 17th straight year. <laughs> well, let's talk about Song of the Summer here. And I can't believe we're talking about Song of the Summer, by the way. I, I feel, I don't feel great that this is a conversation topic. I mean, we are in August and there's not a lot to talk about right now. But Song of the Summer is a topic that I've always been a little resentful of being in the music critic industry. It, it, it seems like one of those holidays that greeting cards companies make up in order to sell product like it doesn't seem like a real thing to me but i have to concede that there are instances where songs bubble up and they legitimately take over the culture and you can call them a song of the summer i was just thinking about that song crazy by Gnarls Barkley. You oh, remember that song? Yeah, speaking of 2006. Jeez. Yeah. That was a song that I think you could legit call a song of the summer. Because it was everywhere. I remember going to Lollapalooza that year. And like three or four artists like covered that song. It mm. was like this. It was required to, to cover that song that year. It was that huge. It's also a song that I hope to never hear again. <laughs> yeah. Good luck in my with life. that. <laughs> And I don't think uh, I don't think I've heard that song in a long time. 
weirdly, this is like a weird tangent here. And maybe this is the song of the summer. I I swear this week I've heard Walking in Memphis by Mark Cohn. You know that song? Of course I know that song. Jewish I've excellence. Song, I've heard that song like every day. Where are, you, like go, past, where, where are you go? Where are you hanging out and hearing this song? I heard it at uh I had to take my uh I had to take my van to the mechanic yesterday. I heard it there. Okay. I heard it I heard it at a gas station. And I heard it at a Walgreens. That that's, that checks out. That tracks. Yeah, exa- and look, I understand hearing that song in any one of those places occasionally, but I just feel like three consecutive days. That's like a lot. That's a. L- I feel like I'm being stalked by walking. It's like stalking in Memphis is Ooh. what that song is. It's stalking me. Sequestered and walking in Memphis. Um. So, I had a story here, lined up talking about. Uh, song of the Summer Candidates, and I, I, I have to Google it again. <laughs> okay, here it is, because uh, I just like wanted to run some of these down. Uh, oh, where is it? It was from USA Today. I feel like that is a good. Yes. You think that's a you think that's a trustworthy publication? Yeah. For uh, breaking down the Song of the Summer. Yeah, if we're talking about Song of the Summer, like we got to go to USA Today. You know, the one publication that's not afraid to tell it like it is that everything is okay. So, like, before I read these uh, nominees for Song of the Summer, according to USA Today, I mean, what do you think about Song of the Summer as a concept? Like, do you think it's a legit concept, or is this something that music writers have trumped up mm-hmm. because it's a slow time of the year and they need something to talk about? Yeah, I, 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 I you know, we got to address what's, you know, I'm sure our listeners have figured out over the past couple of weeks is that there has just been not a single notable album that had, well, you know, there was Utopia, but like, otherwise, um, we got, we got to do something. And so, yeah, Song of the Summer in the same way that like the Grammys and, you know, Super Bowl, like halftime show, these are things that we can, you know, shape our year around. Uh, you know, I get the impulse to do that. Um, I think that once again, we are leaving out, uh, flies got you where I want you as the song of the summer, by the way, I'm, there is a got you where I want you re-recorded on Spotify. That is a minute and 15 seconds longer than the original. And the very moment we are done recording, I will listen to this and give a report back. But yeah, I mean, it's like I looked at the candidates this year and I'm like, I'm vaguely familiar with all these artists, but it makes me feel like I'm on a different planet because I just don't really have a summer. Also, I'm looking at this as ta- the Taylor Swift tour comes to Los Angeles, which blots out every other story that anyone else at my work or in general is talking about. So I get it. I don't feel like I need to participate in it. It's real, I guess. I think the planet of the bass song was like the only one that I've seen like people organically talk about, but that's, I I don't know. I mean, like summer is more meaningful to you in your part of the country though, right? Well, yeah, we're going to talk about patio music here in a minute because I, that's more personally meaningful to me, but uh, let's talk about the song of the summer candidates, according to USA Today. By the way, I, before I read these, I'm still hung up on this, uh, re-recorded version of got you where i want you that's a minute and 15 seconds longer than the original does that mean like the scat in the middle is longer i will be extremely disappointed if there's any other result and i'm looking at the cover it's like the the little thumbnails 96 pack and it looks you know 
graphic design is my passion. It's got like a do. It's got like a men's health cover shot of a guy with six pack abs, which I oh, think yeah. the flies would appreciate because they were very much a gym. Uh, br- we are definitely going to have to this, this like if this release slate gets any fucking weaker, we are going to have to do like a uh, you know a live breakdown of Holiday Man, the gods of oh basketball. God. She's so huge. Take you there. It's the word around towns. They got bangers. But yeah, let's hear what USA. By the way, what is the number one song in the country right now? You, well, well, we'll get to that. Okay, cool. let's just let's just let's just read these nominees. Right. So, according to USA Today, nominees for Song of the Summer: "Mona Lisa" by Dominic Fike, the Euphoria guy, right? Yeah, and he and this song I believe is in the Spider-Man movie, oh. which I saw, and that's a very good movie. I think I know that song. <laughs> I'm not going to play it right now to confirm, but I think I know it. Next nominee: "One Margarita" by That Chick Angel. Casa D and Steve Terrell. Not to be confused with three Marlenas. Okay. No idea. No idea what that song is. Dance the Night by Dua Lipa. This is from the Barbie movie. Okay. Do you remember? Because you saw Barbie. I, I, I haven't saw, seen Barbie yet. I saw it. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember. It, it, like, it, it's, you know, it stands to reason that a Barbie song is going to be uh, on this list. I do remember very distinctly the Tame Impala song, which, I mean, Kevin Parker, man, just cash and checks that guy is like so checked out from doing anything aside from like grabbing you know those and i don't blame him you know he's like on every shitty soundtrack him and mark ronson are like right just just hey man like who do we call mark ronson uh i would have preferred you know them trying to do we we're not gonna like go off on a Barbie tangent, but there you know there this is a movie with like Stephen Malkmus and like Indigo Girls like playing very substantial roles. So I, I you just have to wonder like who is this for? You know. Well, apparently you got Dua Lipa in there too yeah. doing her thing. Um, speaking of Dua Lipa, have you heard? I mean, this is like an old song now. <laughs> that song she did with Elton John uh, from like a couple years ago, "Cold Cold Heart," where it's just like. A bunch of Elton John songs stitched together. Uh, Have you heard this? Uh, I, I I now know it exists. I mean, I hear levitating every other day at the gym, so that's the cold only... cold heart. I that's another song I hear everywhere still. Like I'll just <laughs> that song just stalks me. That song and uh, walking in Memphis mm. can't get away from either one. It's of those. a Dua Lipa, and, Mark Cohn summer. Love it. Um, next song, fast car. Luke Combs, right? The uh, Tracy Chapman cover. You know, we haven't talked about this. This this cover has inspired a lot of discourse um, out there, which seems to be treating Tracy Chapman like she's not a hugely successful star, and that this song isn't already really popular. I don't know. It's very weird conversation about this song. I don't know if you've been keeping up with that. Vague, vaguely aware of it. Vaguely very strange. Aware. Anyway. Vampire by Olivia Rodrigo. Sure. There you go. <laughs> and then, the, as the number one candidate, Cruel Summer by Taylor Swift. And maybe that's it. It's got Summer in the title. Uh, there's two songs in here that are, two songs that are not mentioned by USA Today. The first song is Try That in a Small Town by Jason Aldean. And I'm wondering, does a song have to be good to be the song of the summer, or... Does it just need to be culturally dominant? Because if it's the latter, I think Aldine has to be in the conversation. 
Yeah, I can understand why people wouldn't want to, like, put that in there. Same with, like, whatever Morgan Wallen song, I'm sure, is number one at the moment. Um, well, it's uh, it's important to ask, if we're going to treat this forensically. Yes. <laughs> we got to bring that up. The other song that's not mentioned here is the actual song of the summer, and that is Rudolph by MJ Lenderman. Oh, yeah. Uh, that is the song of the summer, as far as I'm concerned. Um you know, one thing I, I find kind of annoying about this conversation, I mean, I find many things annoying about <laughs> it, but I don't like how narrowly defined A Song of the Summer is supposed to be. Like, it seems like it has to be a bop, you know, like a fun time, danceable bop, which is fine. I mean, that for the summer, that's what it is for a lot of people. I think that should definitely be a component of the conversation. But what about those of us and this is pointing ahead to our patio music conversation, who do not want to dance in the summer, (laughs) but want to sit in a chair and chill. There needs to be more sit in a chair and chill song of the summer candidates. Because I feel like, and again, I might be speaking for the 45-year-old dad rock population here. I'm, I'm happy to be their spokesperson. Uh... I feel like that's an important part of summer as well. And it's not typically uh, represented in the song of the summer conversation. No, no. I mean, for me, like what is summer, but like being in a pool for like 10 minutes and like sitting in air conditioning for the next like 45. I mean, I I feel like the last time I was like fully engaged with like new summer music was like the chill wave summer of 2009 because I'm very much in the same sort of boat right now, which is to say like I, I summer to me is like more lazier and chill and you know, I'm not going out to you know the club or like the the closest thing I have to the club these days is like you know what at like I don't know pigment or whatever sort of uh, you know place in North Park, San Diego that's like playing vaguely like new music. like that is where I interact with stuff. and so, um, yeah, I mean, there is just a real lack of patio music representation uh, on Song of the Summer discourse. But, you know, like, I mean, when they say Song of the Summer, they don't really mean, like, Song of the Summer. It's just like, what is the most popular song right now? And again, isn't that, try that in a small town? Isn't that number one <laughs> right now? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it could be. I, I feel like we would hear about it if it was. It's, prob- it's probably some Morgan Wallen song. Let's just go ahead and look at it. Last night, Morgan Wallen, number one. Fast Car, Luke Combs, number two. Meltdown, Travis Scott, Cruel Summer, number five. Or four. What are you looking at? I'm looking at Billboard Top 100. Okay, because I guess... I guess Try That in a Small Town was number one last week. Yeah, I don't see it. These are mostly like Travis Scott songs. Well, I was looking at the I'm looking at the New York Times. And it said last week it was the number one huh. song. Well, there's uh yeah, religiously Bailey Zimmerman. Um, yeah, these are a lot of Travis Scott songs with uh, Billie Eilish. What was I made? What was I made for? Right behind Try That in a Small Town. Uh, Karma number twenty. Yeah, it's all SZA, it's all Travis Scott, it's all Barbie songs, and then at the top, two dudes from country. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> which Just is a which great act- representation. Yeah, this actually really does sum up where the culture is at right now. So what are we complaining about? I feel like the summer of this song of the summer discourse is like accurately assessed uh, where we're at right now. Okay, 
Well, enough about the song of the summer. Let's talk about patio music. A, a concept that I think is more relevant to both. Well, I, I, this is something I want to actually ask you about. Because I, I know it's relevant to me. And we're talking about this because this summer on Twitter, or I guess X, we're calling it X now. The everything. Uh, uh, we're calling it X because, presumably because I'm getting, how do these look? tweets in my mentions all the time i don't know if you're getting those you know like <laughs> no. we're like 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 i get pornographic replies all the time now. oh yes i do uh, get those yeah and it just it's just like you look at the top and it says how do these look and it's like a blurred photo yeah i thought underneath. you were talking about people like sending you like pictures of their own patio like oh no no oh that happens too but i'm just saying <laughs> i guess that's patio porn right. i'm talking about like actual porn here oh yeah i totally anyway. get those uh, anyway, so I've been tweeting uh, from my patio all summer long where I'm, I'm rocking CDs, I'm rocking cassettes, and I'm taking photos of whatever I'm listening to, and, uh, and I'm inducting albums into the, into the Patio Music Hall of Fame. And people have been asking me, well, how do you define what patio music is? And really, the only definition is patio music is music I'm listening to on my patio. Like, that is what it is. But there are certain qualities that define patio music and we're going to get into that. But before we do, I'm curious for you, Ian, Mm -hmm. a person who lives in San Diego, who doesn't have a patio, who the weather's always warm there. So there's not the same urgency perhaps in the summertime to get outside, to enjoy the warm weather months because you know, by November or December that you're going to be on lockdown for the next like four or five months is this a relevant concept at all? Like, do you like when I tweet about this or talk about this? Does it connect with you on any level? It connects with me for sure, and also I don't want to put myself up as like a representation of like how people are in San Diego as a whole. I no, imagine- you're Mr. San Diego. You're Mr. <laughs> San Diego for me. I got everyone like, is like you. <laughs> I got like the uh, back of my calf tattoo of the sublime sun. Uh, you know. <laughs> We're, we're going to end up talking about fucking uh, Slightly Stupid again. This is what every episode... Like, the arc of IndieCast always bends towards Slightly Stupid. Um, but, you know, I, I, when I've been thinking about patio music, like, I, I think just in general about what my life has been like in California, where the vast majority of my l- music listening happens either in a car or in headphones at the gym, or, like, I work in an office, a communal office, so I'm listening to headphones as well. And so... You know, the the style, my, my music listening experience and the music itself I listen to, I would describe that as like antisocial. You know, even stuff like you, know, you can think of like Pop or like Playboy Cardi or 100 Gex where you get them in a room and like people are like going ape shit. That's still not music you would play in a social gathering. Um, and I think of patio music as being like social music, you know. That's like when 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 you're posting like your CDs or cassettes of like Gordon Lightfoot or whatever it is. I'm like, this reminds me of like the last time in my life where I actually had a patio, which is to say, in college and also like living in the South. And so, my concept of patio music, um, you know, to this day, I made like I made a mix in 2022 in June when I was going back to Virginia, and it had. You know, stuff like, uh, you know, Sunvolt and Drive-By Truckers and Whiskey Town and like that had new songs from like Good Looks, MJ Lenderman, Friendship, like stuff that you or me would post on, um, you know, Recommendation Corner and the stuff in between like War on Drugs, My Morning Jacket. 
And the extended universe is like, you know, outlaw country or Lyle Lovett. Like that to me signifies patio music. Also, I don't listen to music that came out before 1995, apparently. So I do have a grasp of it. It's just like, I can't picture like a a time in my life where I sit on a patio and listen to music and that's what I'm doing, you know, which it's like this thing that keeps the social... Uh, like the social component of whatever you're doing at a simmer rather than a boil. It's like, that's why it's not for me, Bad Bunny or like Ice Spice or these songs, which represent summer to so many other people. I mean, am I, am I like way off base in my definition of patio music? Well, it's funny because you, know, you mentioned how uh, you consider it a social kind of music. And for me, I'll say that if I'm on my patio listening to music, I'm either with my wife or I'm by myself. Like I'm not with a group of people. Again, I am a middle-aged man living in a burb, so I'm not having people over all the time. It is truly a time for after-work contemplation, like where I am looking at the sun, I'm looking at the trees, and I'm listening to music. And it's funny because I've had people call me out on some of my choices sometimes. Like I've, I've talked about like the latest Jason Isbell record being patio music, and someone was like, have you listened to the lyrics of this album? Like, this is a dark album. Like, why would you be partying to this? And I'm like, no, no, no. Patio music is not party music. It is patio music. It is contemplation music. And for me, I mean, most of my favorite music is depressing lyrics plus good time and or anthemic music. Like, that is the kind of music. It's my favorite kind of music. Like, I just wrote a book about Born in the USA, which is one of the first albums I ever loved. And that's what that album is. Mm-hmm. And that's a good patio music record. I recently uh, tweeted about the dive record is the Azar as being a great patio music that record. That was an interesting like, choice to me. But the thing is, is that it was at dusk and it's about the guitar tones on that record. And it's Which like, are awesome. That, that is a vibey sounding record. And yeah, it's dark, but that doesn't detract from the patio-ness for me because again, I am... I was by myself listening to that and I was taking in the nature of my backyard and it was almost like a meditative type thing. I think p- patio music, in a way, it's similar to what you're talking about in, when you listen in the car because you're by yourself. I imagine, because I love listening to music in the car too because you could play music really loud. It's a way to kind of get inside of music in a way that you can't if you're listening to it at your house or on a, on a laptop computer. It's like literally surrounding you. So it's a very powerful experience. With patio music, you're listening to it, but there's also sort of the outdoor ambience coming into it as well that adds another dimension to what you're listening to. And it's probably why, as you suggested, that the music that works best in this environment is sort of rootsy, sort of chugly, maybe a little Americana-ish. Classic rock definitely comes into the play. I recently tweeted about Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms, which I think is a total patio music album, maybe like a a platonic ideal of a patio music album. Is that the one with, uh, is that the one with Money for Nothing on it? Oh yeah. Oh hell yeah. Gotcha. Money for Nothing, So Far Away, uh, Walk of Life, you got the title track, memorably used on the Americans, many people noted that. Um, Mark Knopfler's solo album from like, what what year was that? Like it's what it is. That 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 was like we we played that we we ran that shit back a lot back in uh, college. Oh man, 
Oh man, we we should go deep on Knopfler at some point on this show because he's got a lot of jams. Sailing to Philadelphia, that's what it was. Right? That's a great record. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. With the airplane on the cover. Yeah, that's the one. Yep. Um But uh, you know, what you were saying before about just making time to listen to music, I think that's an important thing. I, I know for me, you know, especially like after work, I've been writing a lot. It's really nice to pour bourbon and stare at trees for a while and listening to music. I think that's a good mental health thing. That's I, like, I'm not seeing a therapist right now, but I am seeing a patio. <laughs> and like, that is my therapy. I think right now that that's, that, that tends to recenter me, you know, and I'm hanging out with my wife or if I'm by myself, like it, it is a very sort of restorative practice for me. Men, men will literally define patio music rather than going to therapy. Nah, but I get well, it. <laughs> well, exactly. It's that much is true cheaper. for me. It is much cheaper. And I think, you know, it, it, it clears away the gunk mm-hmm. in my head. Yeah. I mean, I, there is a component of that for me. I mean, the closest, like, I, there are trees. If When I'm, I'm looking out the window, I'm looking at trees right now. They're palm trees. Uh, and, yeah, I... Um, we're not like the type of household who like plays lazy shit on a Sunday morning. Like that's just not how we get down. And when I get home from work, I'm like probably walking my dog. And that is like maybe the kind of, uh, you know, experience I have the patio music. If it's like dark outside and it's still like warm enough. And um, yeah, I, I think when uh, this whole discussion has, you know, brought up something that I've been thinking about a lot in my life, which is just like how I don't have a lot of time to sit and do nothing. And, um, you know, when I think of like patio music, particularly like the kind that I was describing before, you know, like alt country and like dire straits, like stuff like that. It just reminds me of a time when, um, I was reading this book, like hanging out the power of killing time. And it talks about like how people, you know, romanticize college because it would be a situation where you'd go to someone's like house or dorm room and you would just like hang out for three hours. You just like sit there while they were doing shit. Um, and it's not an experience I have very much. Like I'm maybe like just trying to manifest uh, a lazier time in my life. I'm also reading a book right now called Laziness Does Not Exist. Like I'm trying to have my own sort of patio rock renaissance. So maybe next week I'm like coming back and like ready to ready like ready to rank uh mark Knopfler solo projects that would be amazing <laughs> all right well let's get to our mailbag segment here and uh if you want to hit us up uh please do because we don't have a ton of letters right now from our listeners and i know it's kind of a slow time of the year we haven't done a mailbag either for a few weeks we, we always tend to run late but hit us up we could actually go for an all mailbag episode here pretty soon. <laughs> I think we, we're going to need that. So please hit us up with like good conversation topics. That would be amazing. We're at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, you want to read this letter, Ian? We've actually held this letter for a few weeks. So I, I don't know if it's... The, the timeliness tag might have gone away, but it's still a good topic nonetheless. Yeah, this one does fit very well given the subject matter. Um but yeah, we've kicked this one down the road a little bit, but now it's come to settle. So, hi, Stephen Ian, big fan of the show. A very simple question for you following the 20th anniversary, which happened a few weeks ago, of youth and young manhood, Kings of Leon, yay or nay? And I think it's important to mention that this is Dan from the UK. I feel like they have a different relationship with Kings of Leon than we do as Americans, but 
I'm very interested what you think of Kings of Leon. I, I mean, we've alluded to them on this show before, but I don't think we've really had a substantial discourse about uh, a band which was patio adjacent at one point. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just thinking back on IndieCast history. I think we talked about Kings of Leon when they had the NFT. You remember that? They had an NFT. I don't of, remember it, but I'm sure it happened. Of like their most recent album, which I do not remember the title of, and I'm not convinced it actually exists. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, my path with Kings of Leon, I think, was fairly typical in that you know, Youth and Young Manhood came out, and it was like, oh, it's like the Southern Strokes, and. I could totally get behind that concept. And then the next record, Aha Shake Heartbreak, really hit it home. Like, oh, this is a really good band. Like, I I still like that record. And then you've got uh, the next record, uh, which uh, has, like, the light bulb on the cover that's yeah. breaking. Because and, the uh, times, boy. I because got... the times. Yeah. Which... Is where I started to fade a bit. And then they put out Only by the Night in 2008. And that just blows them up. That's the album with Sex on Fire and You Somebody. And I had the attitude that like, oh, these guys sold out. I'm not into this band anymore. Flash forward several years. (laughs) And I actually came around on the albums I thought I didn't like. Like Because the Times actually is like one of my favorite records now by Kings of Leon. And then Only by the Night is about half good, I think. But, like, the songs I like, I actually like quite a bit. Like, where they decided that they were going to become U2 for some reason. Like, just the part of me that loves dumb, shiny rock really connected with Kings of Leon. And then, you know, like, the records after that just get more and more ridiculous. There's, like, literally an album called Mechanical Bull. Yes. In their catalog. Um, but I don't know. I have a we- I have a weak spot. For Kings of Leon. I Again, I think there are records of theirs that I think are legitimately good. Aha, Shake, Heartbreak would be the one I would say to people, if you are if you want to check out this band, I think that's the best representation of what they do. And then I'd go to Because the Times. Um, so I'm going to give them a yay. You know, I like what I like, and the stuff that isn't as good, I still like because it feeds the id in me, <laughs> that like shiny, dumb radio rock. I would. Uh, we're not going to go over this now, but I would recommend that you look at their Grammy nomination history because between 2009 and 2012, they were like killing it in the Grammys. Uh, you somebody won Record of the Year in 2010. I'm not making this shit up. It won Best Rock Song of the Year in 2010, and it was nominated for Song of the Year. Sex on Fire. Nominated for Best Rock Song, won Best Rock Performance. And God, if you look at like this era, you have like, it's either U2 or Bruce Springsteen or Kings of Leon or uh, there is a random Pearl Jam song thrown in there. Just fascinating. But yeah, you mentioned uh, Because of the Times. Um, This record uh, in the office I worked at in 2007, like this was my walking in Memphis, you know, for you in 2023. There was this one guy I worked with who listened to the first three songs on Because of the Times on repeat every single day for fucking months. I never once got to hear McFearless. Um, And yeah, I wrote like I wrote a bunch of pans, speaking of which, uh, for uh, of these guys at Pitchfork in 2008, 2012 or so. The Follow Wills never clapped back at me. They I think they were, um, you know, 
occupied with other things. I think they were like one of the more, one of the only kind of rehab uh, rock bands of the 2010s or what have you. Um, yeah, I mean, I actually listened to uh, Youth and Young Manhood the other week for like the first time. It was kind of wild. What? I know. You never heard that record? I never time? heard it. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about it is that like it's the sort of record that I would probably be in a better position to like at 23 than I am now. But like I was also like way snobbier at 23. So I'm like, yeah, these guys are these guys are fake, man. They're not real like the Strokes. The one thing that really stood out to me about that record is uh, look, I'm not an expert in backwoods Tennessee accents, but this the worst accent I've ever heard on an album. Like, I don't know what this guy's doing with his voice, but you know, I'm not like opposed to like what they're doing in theory. I kind of want them to be like like a dumbed down Black Crows or like 38 Special or like the Outfield. I want them to just write the 2000s Mississippi Queen. Um, but they decided they want to be like serious and you too at one point. And then they're kind of like muse in that sense where they're like dumb as shit, but they're not any fun. Um, See, I disagree. I disagree with that. And I, because they wrote a song called sex on fire. So like, how serious are they? Like that coincides like with their U2 era. I mean, their next record is, uh, come around sundown. Oh God. Horrible record. There's a single from that record. There was like some weird race stuff going on in that video. Yeah, it's I don't know if it's like for radioactive. Like there's that was a video it. That like was where, it. Where yeah, like like the lead singer or one of them, he's like raising his hands to the sky, like he's like a Christ figure, and there's like all of these like uh, African American children yeah. running around, and it's like a white savior type. I, it's a very odd video. Completely um, booted. Like these guys were gone off yeah something or yeah. other yeah they were they were high on their own supply on that record for sure um i'm gonna shout out your friend though who are or the guy that played the first three songs from because of the times over and over again those are three great songs knocked up great song great like fucking on call like i am like to, to, <laughs> you know to this guy's credit he like did also call. play like he did this also with Feist the Reminder with us like the first three songs. Nothing after nothing after song four. We never got to hear Sea Line Woman. We never got to hear Past and My Present. Only I feel it all and so sorry. I wanna see that guy when he finally went to the fourth track and heard McFearless. <laughs> like he must have just had his head blown off because that that's another just like good track from that record. I mean I think Kings of Leon actually is a lot of fun. I, I think they're an enjoyable band, and I think if you don't take them seriously, they become more enjoyable, uh, which is why I came around on those sellout records after the first two. Um, because, again, there's like not a lot of really popular rock bands from that era that just you know went as over the top as they did. And I have appreciation for them. But yeah, I mean, again, I think uh, Aha, Shake, Heartbreak, Because of the Times, two records I legitimately legitimately like. I think Youth and Young Manhood is also pretty good. So yeah, I'm yay. And are you nay? I'm nay. I, 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 I want to. like I, I, In kind of the way like Muse is a yay for me because like they're so clearly like dumb. Like I, 
I don't know if like Kings of Leon are enjoying themselves at all, like throughout their Sex on Fire uh, era. I think that's well, the difference. Like, I think Muse is like, yeah, we're like we're dumb as shit, or like they think they're brilliant. But either way, it's like you could sort of see like why this, you know, it's Guitar Hero sort of fun. Like Kings of Leon, like they just make drugs look kind of bad. Like a, they're like not, en- they just don't seem to be enjoying themselves in the way I feel like they should. Well, you know, I will say, as someone who has seen the Kings of Leon documentary, there's a yeah, it's called Tala Heine Sky, I believe is how you pronounce it. <laughs> I bet that's not even a real place. <laughs> I'm totally mispronouncing that, but yeah, it's, it came out in 2011, huh. and uh, very entertaining documentary. Sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally, but it's a good watch. I recommend it. It's a little unsung. But uh, yeah, if you want to see like a young band that becomes extremely successful and how it goes to their head and kind of ruins the band, like that is a good movie to watch. It's only 87 so, minutes though. So I, yeah. it was also nominated for a Grammy. Well, do you want it to be longer? Like you wish that no, movie I, was I, like I, three I, hours? I want, I want the get back of like Mechanical no. Bull where they're just like banning about different arrangements for this song that I never heard or never will hear. I love but, I love the complaint that the Kings of Leon documentary isn't long enough. Like, no, you got you got you got you got to jam it out. You got to like let no. you got to let these guys cook. I want to see them in all their like uh, you know, drugged out glory. I trust, like, trust me as someone who has seen it, 87 minutes is the perfect length for the Kings of Leon documentary. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, this one's got a little porch adjacent, if you like a little porch emo. Um, Actually, I don't know if it's emo or not, but it's close. Um, I want to bring up a record that came out uh, last week called uh, Bury the Dead. It's by a project called Spirit Night. If you're on Twitter, you probably know uh, Dylan. I'm going to mispronounce his last name, and so I won't even say it, but you know, Dylan, Spirit Night, he, elite, elite poster. Um, but it turns out that, uh, you know, he's actually really good at music, you know, like uh, we, there are so many artists who like I follow on Twitter and because they're funny or they seem cool. And then I have to like kind of backpedal. It's like, eh, the record's okay. Like, I don't want to promote this. I don't want to like, you know, I, what do I do? But this guy's actually really good. And that's always a relief. Um, he put out a record I really, really liked in 2018 called Shame when he was, uh, you know, just stopped being a member of a certain heavily populated emo band with a very big name. Um, and what this one does, it's uh, just a very tuneful, emo-scented pop rock album. He's mentioned like Old Saddle Creek or R.E.M. on Discord as like the sort of aim. Songs about nostalgia, dead friends, living in West Virginia. Um, really good patio music topics. Um, you know, there's a song called Country Roads that sort of, you know, splits the difference between uh, John Denver and Weezer's Beverly Hills. And I promise you that's like intentional and good. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's very low stakes, but very enjoyable. Um, it's kind of album that you don't hear much of these days. And he, you know, set out to make a record that would like, he said, like kind of save my life back in uh, 20, like 2005. So uh, yeah, it kind of ties together a lot of themes. Patio music, Old Saddle Creek, you know, vis-a-vis Rilo Kiley. Good stuff. Spirit Night. Bury the Dead. Yes, I also like this record. Shout out to Dylan. 
good tunes, good jams. Definitely want to play it on the patio this weekend. Uh, I want to shout out a record called I Looked Out by a singer-songwriter named Greg Freeman, who's originally from Vermont, and now he's in Portland. This album actually came out in 2022, and I don't remember reading about it. I didn't hear the album when it came out. I actually discovered this record because a reader reached out to me on Twitter and was like, I can't believe you haven't talked about this album. It seems like it's totally up your alley. So I went on Bandcamp, I checked it out, and the reader was absolutely right. I like this record a lot, and I would recommend it to people who, like me, are loving MJ Lenderman right now, listening to Rudolph, listening to Knockin', his other recent single, which is great. Actually, a re-recorded version of an older song, but it is, I think, like vastly improved sonically in its new incarnation. Um, if you're into MJ Lenderman, I would say Greg Freeman is someone you should also be listening to. Uh, he shares a fascination with Jason Molina. Like you definitely hear that influence on this record, but I would say that he takes that in more of like a nineties indie rock direction. Like there's some guided by voices influences here. I think a little bit of like neutral milk hotel influences as well. Uh, and it's just great indie music with like paddle steel on there a little bit of a country influence also a little bit of an indie rock influence a very very enjoyable record i'm sorry i missed it last year but better late than never i think you all should check it out too it's called i looked out by greg freeman uh we've now reached the end of our episode so thank you for listening we'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week and if you're looking for more music recommendations sign up for the indie mixtape newsletter you can go to uprocks.com backslash indie and i recommend five albums per week and we'll send it directly to your email box (laughs) 